Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 3. These are the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by the prophet Isaiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough place a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. You've likely heard the cliche, uh, a level playing field, or to level the playing field. And level the playing field, this cliche, people apply this. What they mean is that the participants in some sort of competition or athletic endeavor are given an equal shot by all playing according to the same rules. This becomes a level playing field. There is no partiality, there is no preference given to anyone based on external criteria. When you're on the field, the same rules apply to you. You know what a playing field looks like that isn't level. You know what that looks like. Um, If you watch sports, you know that there are certain athletes who are treated like royalty, and they are actually given a preference. Someone like LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Tom Brady get calls that other players don't uh, because, because of their status within the sport. Their competitors have legitimate claim that the playing field is not level. But it's not just sports. This happens in day-to-day life, too. The cliche starts in sports, but it extends to other places as well, maybe the workplace. Maybe the workplace, you've heard this cliche, when someone is promoted, not because of the quality of their work, but because they have good looks or because they're gregarious in their personality. Or even in our families, sometimes this happens. A sibling isn't held to the same standards as the others because they really know how to play the parents' emotions. You also know what a level playing field looks like. You've seen injustice when it comes to, when it comes to rules and those sorts of things in your day-to-day life. But you also know what it looks like. Uh, in high school, I played football. I was a linebacker, and if you're saying you're a little undersized, then you're right. Um, I was actually quite undersized. I was just like Eastern European frame, and so everything's kind of small in my shoulder area, so I look weak, but I'm, I have a really firm base. It didn't help. 
One Friday night, we played a team, this team, uh, just a little bit to the south across the river. Um, They had a few D1 commits. Uh, They were defensive players. They were linebackers themselves. I played linebacker, so I didn't have to. But then the, the coach would put them in on offense in goal line situations. They'd put these monstrous athletes across from us and hand them the ball and run it right up the middle. And of course, on one occasion, they ran right at me. And I did everything right fundamentally. I think if I remember right, I did everything right fundamentally in my mind. And my defensive line did everything right. They absorbed the, they didn't allow the, the offensive line to get to the second level. And so I was free to make the play. But the, the gentleman who had received the ball He was a little bit larger than me. I was unblocked. I met Mike Marish at the line of scrimmage. I broke down, good form, did everything right. He was 6'1", 230, if he had fasted for a week. And in full equipment, I was 5'9", about 180. And I don't have to tell you what happened because just even the most basic understanding of physics tells you what happened. The playing field was level. Those same rules applied. I met him in the hole. I broke down, made a football play. No one received preference. I was found lacking. In this passage, in this passage, we find out a leveling, quite literally a leveling. If you look in the first several verses of this passage that I read, You'll see a literal topographic leveling. Valleys lifted up, mountains made low, crooked paths made straight. And God does this for a very clear purpose in this passage. was to show his people something very specific. This is what we're going to explore together this morning. Three ideas out of these verses that I read will guide our time together. The first is this, the elimination of earthly position in verses 3 and 4. Secondly, in verses 6 and 7, we'll see time as an equalizer. And then in verses 5 and 8 and 9 through 11, we'll see a confident clarity. These three things. The elimination of earthly position time as an equalizer, and a confident clarity. So let's start in verses 3 and 4. Look at those two verses with me. And the elimination of earthly position. If you look at verse 3 and you see the words of voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and you think, that looks familiar, you're right, We just came out of the Christmas season and we know that Jesus came into the world, that he took on flesh to dwell among his people. And immediately following sort of the birth narrative in all four Gospels, uh, then you meet John the Baptist. In Matthew 3.3, Mark 1.3, Luke 3.4, and John 1.23, this verse is quoted in all four Gospels. And John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin and he lives in the wilderness And he proclaimed that the Messiah was coming. He was the forerunner for Jesus' coming. 
Jesus being the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the deliverer of his people. And John serves this very specific purpose to say, in the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But the people who are reading what Isaiah writes here and who have this declared to them in Isaiah chapter 40, do not, do not uh, know who John the Baptist is. And so how would they have read these two verses? How would they have heard this entire passage? Well, there are three things to consider just in verses 3 and 4 for us. Three things that would have been a little bit like an alarm going off in their minds. They would have heard something and they would have thought, okay, this reminds me of this thing and this is how I need to begin to apply what, what's, what, what Isaiah is writing here. Three things. For, first, the crier, the one who cries, a voice who cries, right at the beginning of verse 3, is not identified. There's no one who, no one's ascribed to this. No one, we don't know who this is. And it's important that we don't know who it is. And the answer is, or the question is why, and the answer is because it's not the one who cries here who matters, but the one who, on whose behalf he cries. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. He's saying, look at the Lord. Don't look at me. Don't look at the one who's crying. Look at the Lord. John the Baptist understood this. He picks this idea up. He understands that the one who cries in the wilderness is to, in fact, remain anonymous. In John 3, 29 through 30, John the Baptist says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's coming. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying, no one goes to a wedding for the best man. That's not why you're there. If you're at the wedding, you're there to celebrate a man and a woman becoming husband and wife. You're not there to celebrate the best man. And the best man gets out of the way. He doesn't need to be identified. Nobody hears the herald and assumes he is more important than the one he heralds. The one who cries here is not more important than the one who he cries about. There is a voice of a person, but it quickly fades to the background. The message is such a great message, such an incredible thing, that the crier says that whoever it is that says it is of little consequence. The voice of the man evaporates into the atmosphere. If I told you that there would be a blizzard this afternoon, please know. But if I told you there was going to be a blizzard this afternoon, what would be greater? Me telling you that there would be a blizzard this afternoon or the blizzard itself? The answer is the blizzard itself. The blizzard itself is greater than the one who tells you that there's a blizzard. The messenger is only the messenger because he is sent with a message. And God does not want us to misidentify his messengers with his message. And so the voice remains anonymous. The second thing, though, in verses 3 and 4 that we need to take note of is the very next words. A voice cries 
in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, this is important imagery for, for the people. For the people who have been carried off into exile, into Babylon, this is important imagery. God brings his people much earlier in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, out of the land of Egypt and out of slavery. He delivers them from slavery. And the people then, even though they've just been delivered from their oppressors in Egypt, the people grumble. Say, God, why did you bring us out here? Why did you put us in this strange, weird place where there's nothing to eat and nothing to drink? And they say something similar to, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to make us die? And because of their grumbling and because of their unbelief, because of their ingratitude, what God does is he disciplines his people. He disciplines by causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're unable to enter the promised land that God has promised to them. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, the people are carried into exile again. They are exiled from their home, from Jerusalem. They are no longer in Judah, that promised land that God had given to them, where Jerusalem is. Now these people are in the wilderness once again because of their sin. And so, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God made them to be carried off to a place that is not their home as discipline for their idolatry. But even in the wilderness, God is preparing to reveal himself to his people. This is good news. No matter where you are in your life, no matter what's going on, no matter if you feel like you're at home with the Lord or if you feel like you're somewhere far and distant from him, God is revealing himself to you. God is not back in Jerusalem. He's with his people in Babylon. God is there amongst his people. God is preparing. Isaiah is saying this in chapter 40. As they are in exile in Babylon, God is preparing to reveal himself to his people and is even continually revealing himself to his people. He is there. He is present even in their distress. He did it on Mount Sinai when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. And he'll do it again here in Babylon. The third thing we see in verses 3 and 4 is just this topographical leveling. And this is the content of the message. The content of the message that the crier cries out, that the messenger declares, that the herald heralds. What's the message? Well, God is making everything level. Valleys brought up, mountains made low, unevil, even ground leveled, rough places become smooth. Why is that the, why is that the content of the message? What are you saying? What does God want us to hear? God is putting all of his people in the exact same place. He's removing all sorts of obstacles that might be in the way of seeing him, of him revealing himself to his people. The valley of poverty and poor repute. He's removing the mountains of wealth and status. Whatever anyone 
has gained or lost in an earthly sense will not in this moment prevent them from beholding their God. High-ranking officials in the king's court and beggars on the street are both carried off into exile and treated exactly the same way by the Babylonians. And because of this, God levels everything out. There are no obstacles of status and wealth. There are no obstacles of poverty and poor repute. All of these things are removed so that each individual, each person, each one of God's people can look and behold their God without anything getting in the way. This is what God is doing, and He's bringing it to them in a moment of discipline and suffering. By eliminating their earthly position, God prepares their eyes to behold His glory. So, God eliminates earthly position. But now move your eyes down the page to verses 6 and 7. This is time as an equalizer. Time as an equalizer. Verse 6 says, A voice is cry, and I said, What shall I cry? Now Isaiah assumes the role of the crier. All flesh is grass, and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Surely the people are grass. The message is that the limit of time binds all mankind. Everything that is in creation is bound by time. No one escapes it. No one gets around it. Time limits everything. We live in the prairie and so we see, see the seasons come and grow pretty quickly. The grass, covers this, or the grass is covered now by snow. But six months ago, it was green, and it looked, looked good. The wildflowers were in bloom. But in a very short six months, all of that changes dramatically. Seasonal change, drought, fire, water, pick a thing. It's mo- only a matter of time before the beauty that's contained within the field and the grass and the flowers withers and fades. Short six months, the grass of the field, the flowers of the field are susceptible to time. And we can see it very clearly. God shows Isaiah and tells Isaiah to tell the people that the very thing that they think could last for a long time, in fact, will not last very long in the grand scheme of things at all. We, the flesh, We are flesh and we are grass, the text says. We wither, the flowers fade. Even the most celebrated, beautiful things wither and fade. And this notion poses a difficult question to us. Who are you going to trust? God wants to show the limit of time and the time as an equalizer in order to Show the foolishness of trusting things other than Him. Alexander the Great, you've heard that name, one of the greatest conquerors in military history. Once it came upon the philosopher Diogenes, 
staring at a pile of bones. Alexander asked Diogenes what he was doing. He was just looking at these bones. Alexander said, what are you doing? And Diogenes replied, I am searching for the bones of your father, but I cannot distinguish them from those of his slaves. And of course, Alexander's father was Philip II, of course. Another great military mind. But time was his equalizer. And his bones could not be differentiated from the bones of the lowest of society. Earlier in Isaiah, before the exile, God says to his people, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath, for of what account is he? This begins to and potentially sounds like a slight, but let me say it clearly. You're not that big of a deal. You say, yeah, but you know, no, the, the grass withers and the flower fades. And in the grand scheme of things, our life is represented in this very small slice Very small, considering everything that exists in the universe, all that exists around us, billions of light years in every direction around us. You're flesh. You're fallible. You're limited in ways that you don't even know. Your little heart beats right now. But what's to guarantee that it beats the next second? Your hair is graying, or is entirely gray, or maybe white. Did you make it that way? You're the grass in the field of eight billion other blades that are all withering. Billions of other blades that have come before, and billions that will come after. If, you're, if that's offensive, that good, that's the design. The design is to feel small. Know that that's not all the Bible says about you as a person. But it is one that you should reckon with. One that you should contemplate regularly. Just how small you are. We need to contemplate our insignificance more than the world around us seems to think. More than people who tell us about self-esteem say is healthy. The Bible puts us in a position where we need to consider our insignificance. But even the people who say that that's not healthy are withering as well. Here's why you need to contemplate your own insignificance and why these two verses here are so important for us to meditate on with consistency. It is only God, it is only God who is qualified for our final trust. It is only God who is qualified for our final trust. 
kings and presidents and CEOs and your boss and your spouse and your parents will all die and they will do so relatively soon. And all those people will make promises to you that they can only partially deliver on. All of those people will leave you feeling a little bit empty or a lot of bit empty. And all those people are like grass. And that doesn't mean you don't love them and respect them and honor them and treat them with dignity and celebrate them. But you cannot finally trust them. You cannot finally and fully trust in flesh. It is grass. And you cannot finally trust yourself. Joe Biden and Donald Trump aren't God. Elon Musk and Bob Iger aren't God. Your husband and your wife, they're not God. Your kids, your parents, they aren't God. Friends, you're not God. And when we begin to treat anything other than God as God, God swiftly reminds us that all flesh is grass. It is only God who is qualified to have your final trust. This is why He levels things out. Why He removes obstacles from the vision of His people. In order that they would look at Him and not confuse Him for flesh. They would not confuse him for something that withers and something that fades and something that is gone with the change of the seasons. There's only God who is qualified to have your final trust. And he wants to show his people that they and all people, including their Babylonian captors, are insignificant and withering and fading. What is their hope for the future in the midst of exile? It is God and not them. It is the word of our God that will stand forever. And that's in verse 8. That brings us then to the third point this morning. A confident clarity. A confident clarity. Look at verse 5. This is, he says these things. He says everything's being leveled out. And then he tells us why in verse 5. He says, all flesh is like grass, it's withering and it's fading. And then he tells us why in verse 8. And then he tells us what the result of those things are in verses 9 through 11. That's the structure of this section. Look at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then in verses 9 through 11, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, says, say to the city of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
God wants to show His people something clearly about who He is. The highest places come down. The lowest places come up. Uneven places become level. The rough places are now plain. Flesh is like grass. It's withering. What now? What now? Now, there is no thing. There is nothing preventing us from beholding our God. There is nothing now preventing His people from beholding Him. We see in verse 4, Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Obstacle removed. But then, when we get through verses 9-11, through we find another mountain. But this mountain isn't in our way. It's the mountain designed for us, for God's people to go up, to declare, to speak, to herald the good news. This mount is Mount Zion. And Zion, you see that a lot in Scripture. And sometimes that can be confusing. It's referenced a lot of times. But the word itself actually sort of means raising up a monument. Putting on display something for his people. It's usually used to tell about the city of God where God dwells uninterrupted with his people. But the call here, all the obstacles have been removed. Now behold your God. Behold your, And who are we beholding? Who is this God that we are beholding? We learn about it in verses 10 and 11. He's a mighty king. He comes with might and his arm rules for him. He's a prosperous benefactor. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Those who are aligned with this one benefit greatly from who he is. He is generous with what he has and welcomes others into his riches. And he is a tender shepherd, a tender protector. He will tend his flock like a sheep, like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Look at the contrast. Look at, look at how God wants to reveal himself to his people. As someone who comes and will stand unopposed, whose riches exceed all, of, all other earthly wealth. And yet he is tender. He cares deeply for his people. He speaks to them like we saw last week in verses 1 and 2, comfort. He doesn't use his strength to bear down in a tyrannical way against his people. He uses his strength to carefully care for his his flock. When his people were carried off into exile, no doubt God's people were confused. Where is our God and who is he? Their sin had polluted their view of Him. Their sin had caused them to feel like He was far off. But through the exile, through His corrective discipline for His people, God cleared away the barriers for His people to see their God clearly. And this clarity created in His people a joy and a boldness. Herald 
the good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, fear not. To stand in the highest place, to declare the good news of their God, a renewed strength, a renewed clarity. Lift it up, fear not. Say to God's people and to the entire world, Behold your God. This leads us to a conclusion. Four four things this morning related to how this passage relates to us. The first is this. The first is, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what the New Testament tells us very clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we are to behold our God, it is because we behold and look at Jesus Christ. When the call comes to behold your God, we must remember John 1.8, or John 1.18, rather. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. This is speaking directly of Jesus. Jesus Christ has made the Father, has made God known to us. And there is no way to behold God apart from beholding His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, what this isn't telling us to do is go look at pictures of Jesus. Note verse 5. Go back to verse 5. Look at how this is structured. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Not because you're going to see an image, but because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Because His word has been made plain and clear to us. This is what we rest in. This is how we see Jesus Christ. We see Jesus Christ in the word of God. Because Jesus is the word of God who took on flesh. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has made God known to us by coming to earth. God makes himself known to us through his word. Apart from Christ, you cannot know God. Apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. You cannot claim to know God apart from Jesus Christ. And you cannot claim to have seen the glory of God apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus has shown us God's glory and the call to behold your God for us who now know the whole story and who have the whole written word in front of us. The call to behold your God is a call to come to Christ. Jesus is the mighty king described in verse 10. Jesus is the prosperous benefactor in verse 10. Jesus is the good shepherd, the tender shepherd, the protector in verse 11. We see all of those things clearly portrayed in the life of Jesus. And he, even with his own mouth, speaks and tells us that he is in fact these things. How do we come to Christ? 
We come to Christ through his work on the cross for us. All the obstacles that were erected because of our sin, he deals with them. He eliminates them. He bids you to come to him. And so the call is to come to him by faith. Believing that he is the only way to see the glory of God. Do you want to see the glory of God? Do you recognize that your own flesh is grass? That it is withering? It is fading? There are more wrinkles on your forehead than there were yesterday. It's going away. Do you long to see the glory of God? Look at the face of Christ. Go to the cross and see that that is the place where everything is leveled out. That everything that is Large or big will be made small. Everything that is low will be made high. Come to Him in faith, believing that He is the only way to see the glory of God. And so that leads to concluding point two. And this is a question for you Where is your final trust? Where is your final trust? You and I are flesh that fades and withers. Even the highest position in this life are brought low and the lowest ones are brought up by a simple word of God. Are we going to place our final trust in Him? Friends, our confidence must be in Christ alone. Where is confidence for your life? Where is the confidence for your life? Jesus Christ, we're told in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And in John 1.14 and 16-18, through 18, The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Does this sound like a person that you can place your confidence in? A person whom you can trust fully and finally? The answer is yes. And he's the only one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Third concluding point. Our faith as Christians isn't based on what we can do. It's based on what God promises to do for us. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're trusting yourself for salvation, know that you cannot accomplish it. You are flesh. Your limits are very real. You will come up short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You must trust something other than what you can do. Friends, hear me appeal to you this morning. You must trust something more than you can do. You can't do enough. You can't even come close.
Here's the good news. Christ did enough. And we're promised that all who come to Christ, believing that he can, will be joined to him and become the inheritors of eternal life. His reward is with him. His recompense before him. He is this prosperous benefactor who can provide for you all that you need and more. Don't be mistaken. You can't. God can and has promised in Christ that he will. Final thing this morning. Those who behold their God herald their God. Do you desire, if you're a Christian, do you desire for people in your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends to know Christ and to trust him for the forgiveness of their sins? As Christians, we are called to make Christ known. But sometimes what we do in the church is we throw ourselves into all sorts of trainings, all sorts of strategies for evangelism. But God's ways here are simpler than ours and always more effective. God's ways are simpler than ours. We like to complicate things because then it may remove a little bit of responsibility from us. But God's ways are simpler and always more effective. What this passage tells us about speaking good news to our loved ones is that those who look at God in the face of Jesus Christ invite others to look at God in the face of Jesus Christ. Those who behold their God also herald their God. Those who know their God tell others about Him. Because they know that all flesh is like grass and that it's withering and fading and even a rejection, even a frustrated, angry response from someone hearing about the truth of Jesus Christ will quickly go away. Those who behold their God herald their God. If you tried to tell others about Jesus regularly and you feel like you're spinning your wheels, the answer isn't to get better at telling other people about Jesus. It's to look at God, to behold your God, and then herald him. So go to scripture. Look at Jesus. Look at not just the gospels, but look there. Look not just at the gospels, but all of scripture. Because all of scripture, we can see here very clearly in Isaiah 40, points itself to Jesus. There is no way apart from Jesus to know God. Friends, the glory of the Lord is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So let us behold it together by hearing that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's given us His word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word that God has given to us will endure forever. And so we can lift it up. We don't need to be afraid, but we can declare together, Behold your God. And our confidence for saying, behold our God, 
comes in Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. God, would you impress upon us this reality this morning, the truths that are contained here. God, would you do what you say you will do here in Isaiah 40? Will you level things out for us so that there are no barriers or obstacles for us to see you clearly? God, we recognize that this may be a difficult process. That it may be a painful one, in fact. Because there are things that we've erected in places that we have made other things our God, or at least put in a position to challenge you in our day-to-day lives. God, would you level them, bring us into complete submission to you. God, would we go to your word this week seeking to see you clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you show us your glory? God, would we desire to reflect that glory, to speak truth about it to each and every person we come in contact with? Would you make us more into the image of Jesus Christ even as we go from this place? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name, by the Holy Spirit, that we pray. Amen.